Well, we get to start a brand new series today called Straight Street. I love kicking off brand new series because it's like a fresh slate. It's like a big white marker board with nothing written on it yet. And our expectations are high. And we even got into like the second or third series where we're or message where we're like, yeah, we know where they're going. We got this figured out. So I get a brand new slate today. And this series is all about the life of Paul the Apostle. Now, if you're confused by the title, don't worry, we'll get to that. We'll explain that. Paul the Apostle is maybe best known for writing or dictating almost half of the New Testament, almost half of the books in the New Testament. And most of his letters were written to local churches, were written to churches and communities just like ours. They weren't written to make himself famous. They were written out of love to the people that God had called him to serve. So when I read his letters, I think he might have been writing this to Church 214. It was just called Ephesus back in those days. Do you get it? Do you get that? It's personal. It's written to us. He also has a couple of really significant labels that if he had a tombstone, I imagine the inscription would look something like this. Religious scholar... Christian killer, tent maker. I don't know who's got that portion, but I really hope you talk about why he was a tent maker because that's just dope. I know. I'm a white girl. I can say dope. Gospel igniter and martyr. But in order to really understand the significance of Paul the apostle, we have to go back and we have to start with where he came from. And in order to do that, I want us to look at the life of a young man named Stephen. So our story today begins at the time in history when Jesus had come to earth. He had been crucified for you and for me. He had risen from the grave. And they'd spent a little time with his disciples on the earth. Then he ascends back up in heaven to be with his father. I imagine he was probably like, Whew, that assignment's finished. Can you imagine the weight of that assignment? Jesus had told his disciples, hold on, guys, just wait. I'm going to send you a helper, and it's actually better for you that this helper we now know is the Holy Spirit, it's better for you that he comes than I be here. Now, Can you imagine their confusion? They had just walked for three years with Jesus on earth. They had seen his power. They had seen him do miracles. They had seen him rise up from the dead. And he's saying, it's better that this helper comes and that I go away. Can you imagine? I mean, they were used to Jesus saying things that they didn't understand. But can you imagine their doubt. We talk about this particular thing a lot, but I think it's so important that we understand the significance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit for a moment. Some of you are starting to sweat a little. It is one of, (laughs) already sweating, me too. It is one of my favorite topics, hands down. I don't think that we have put enough value on the Holy Spirit in his place in our lives. And by we, 
I mean followers of Jesus in the church. Often, when people speak of the Holy Spirit, they speak of him as if he's something or someone to be scared of or ignored. I actually think sometimes people might be talking about somebody totally different than the Holy Spirit that I know. Because it, it doesn't sound like they're describing the same being. The Holy Spirit that I know is a guide. Galatians says this about the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit guide your life. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what our sinful nature desires. Think about that. We're over here with sinful desires. And the Holy Spirit's over here. And he's replacing those sinful desires with good desires. That doesn't sound scary to me. That doesn't like sound like something that I want to ignore. John 15 says this about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. He never leaves us. You guys, that is better than Bay. Because Bay sometimes leaves us. Are you hearing me? The Holy Spirit never leaves us. I have to remind my younger brothers and sisters that I'm not that old yet. <laughs> or myself. That's true. Here's what it means. It means that when loneliness feels too heavy, the Holy Spirit is there. Hebrews 11 says, the Holy Spirit brings God's mercy to us. I want God's mercy. I want to know the person I want to know the person that brings me God's mercy. I don't want to ignore or shut out the one who brings God's mercy on me. So I would ask you, what place does the Holy Spirit hold in your life? Do you believe he exists, but you kind of hold him at arm's length? Mm, you can just stay over there. Like you get the Father, God the Father. You get Jesus the Son, but the Holy Spirit, you're kind of like, mm-hmm. You make me a little uncomfortable. Or do you lean in and do you listen? Do you acknowledge him? Do you respond when he speaks to you? Because I believe, I know he is speaking to us all of the time. I know he is speaking to me all of the time. Are we in the practice of hearing him though? And then do we share those experiences out loud when we do hear him? Here's what I found. When I share with other people the the Holy Spirit speaking to me, what he's spoken to me, two things. There are two responses. The first one, and this is what happens most of the time, people are drawn in, and they go, oh, I want to know more about this. I want to experience the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And they begin to wake up to his presence and to his activity in their life. The second response is that they call me names, or they think I'm making it up, or they think I'm a nutcase. But when you've had a taste of the Holy Spirit's power at work in your life, you don't care if people think you're a nutcase. Because it's that good, and all you want is more of it. I firmly believe that sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks things to you that are just for you, not for anyone else. They're quiet revelations. Sometimes they're 
rebukes. Sometimes it's encouragement. And it's just for you. It's not to be posted on a story for everyone to hear about. But I also think more often than not, we hide what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us because we're unsure. We doubt that it was the Holy Spirit. Wait, was that you? And we don't want to look like a fool. So we keep quiet. Even our best friends don't actually know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and is at work in our lives. Our kids don't know because we don't tell them about it. We keep it hidden. So how do we hear the Holy Spirit? How do we know it's his voice? We lean in. We create quiet space to hear him, and we ask. We say, Holy Spirit, I want to get to know you better. I want to hear from you, and he will answer you. It's a promise. Or you can just sit around waiting like the disciples did. The difference is they were waiting for someone who had not yet come. This Holy Spirit is already here with us. We do not have to wait. We just have to lean in. So the disciples are sitting around and they're waiting for this mysterious helper and Acts 2 happens. We talk about Acts 2 a lot here. It's where we get our our church name from, our church identity from. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people and it's this powerful event. People come rushing from all over to see what's going on and Acts 2.14 happens. Peter and the 11 apostles, they step forward. I love what Christy said last week. She said they stood up. And Peter begins to preach about Jesus. And in one day, one day, 3,000 people come to know Jesus. And that became the very first Jesus-believing, Holy Spirit-led church. It paved the way for us to be here today. Acts 2 goes on to tell us that they form a community. They begin to share everything that they have. I love the fact that there is a table full of diapers and wipes back there as we are sharing everything that we have with one another. You guys, this is exactly what Acts 2 was doing. I don't think they had disposable diapers, but you get the point. Acts 2.47 says, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Can you even imagine? Every single day. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of Acts. We're going to be there for a little while. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, this is chapter 6, starting in verse 1, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers. I've never heard anything like that before. saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we, the apostles, can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following— One of those men was Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So God's message continued to spread, and the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Stephen, 
a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. I want you to understand that the apostles were not saying what we are doing is more important. The apostles were saying this is what we're called to do, but if we don't get some help, none of it's going to get done well. We need other people to come alongside of us and help us take care of all that's going on in this community. A couple of years ago, Chris and I took a trip up to eastern Canada, and we drove hundreds of miles. Um, Some of the trip was even in remote parts of Canada that they didn't even speak English. We went into a gas station, and I asked for something, and they looked at me like I was crazy. They just spoke French, and it was such an amazing trip. But one of my favorite memories of the whole trip was one day we're driving down a nicely paved, fast, concrete highway, and we decide to take a detour, and we decide to go off on some side streets. What we found on those side streets wasn't more concrete, but pothole-filled roads with miles and miles and miles of wildflower fields on either side of us. The beauty that surrounded us was stunning. So I want to take a little side street right now off of our main text for just a moment because sometimes on long journeys, it's the side streets where you find the best treasures. Three years ago, 14 of us started this church And many of you that are in here today came alongside of us in support of it. I remember so clearly sitting in a living room and telling the Lord, we want to be obedient to do this. We know you've called us to do this. We want to obey you. And we trust you to grow this church. We trust you to grow it spiritually, and we trust you to grow it numerically. So often in our culture today, Things are measured by the world's measuring stick and not by God's. And we knew that we had to be okay if this church existed to reach a few people and not the thousands like some of the churches that we respect do. We knew that we had to get some foundation work done first. So over those three years, we've had a few people leave and go find other church homes, and that's okay. That happens in every single church. A few times, whether it was their real reason or not, though, the statement has been made to us. We just don't see any growth. And by growth, they meant numbers of people sitting in these chairs. First of all, that's just not true. How many of you started attending this church in the last two years? Secondly, we are okay with slow growth when it comes to numbers. We knew from the beginning that this might be the case here. Because we are more concerned with the spiritual growth of every single individual person sitting in these chairs than we are with a big number that makes us feel accomplished. And that growth can't be measured by a number written on a sheet. That growth is measured by things that are hard to count. That growth is measured by the fruits of the Spirit that are showing up in every single one of your lives. 
Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The growth that we care about is measured by the stories that we hear from you as you share names of people that you are loving, that you are bringing into your home, those people that you are forgiving, the people that you are building tables for, the people that you are taking out to lunch. The growth is measured by individual names and their stories of God walking with them as they take their next step towards Jesus. The growth is a song being written and sung in our church for our church by someone in our church. The growth is a marriage, Thomas and Katie, that nearly ended a couple of years ago, and today God has redeemed and is doing a miracle in their life. The growth is a family who has never stepped foot in this church but listens to our podcasts. The growth is 20 men spending every Wednesday evening including Valentine's Day, in a basement together. (laughs) I'm really not bitter at all. I'm not. I promise. Not at all. Sharing struggles and leaning in to the Holy Spirit. The growth is women of this church leading a conference for our city, open and welcoming to women of every background. The growth is a dad bringing his kids to church. The growth is a single mom bringing her children to church. The growth is our kids praying on the hockey ice and on the playgrounds. And I could go on and on and on. God knows exactly who is here. And he knows exactly how many we are capable of caring for in this season. And that is taking nothing away from churches with large numbers of people. That is so exciting. But also with that comes bigger issues and comes the need for more people to step into their roles, just like what happened in the Church of Acts. So this next part that I'm going to say to you might seem a little bit contradictory to you based on what I just said, but we know that it is our responsibility as the leaders of this church and the teachers of God's word not to just say what's going to make you feel good, but also to point you to the truth, even though it might be hard to hear sometimes. I read something in my own personal Bible reading this past week that I was not intending to be a part of this message, but as I began to write this and I began to listen to the Holy Spirit, I felt like it was for all of us. Just like we read in Acts a few minutes ago, we're going back to that, the early church was spreading across this region, and it had experienced fast, powerful growth. And people were initially so on board with this. They were like, yes, we're committed to living this new way of following Jesus. One of the things that I read said that they were notably zealous. How good is that? In helping God's people. But then as time goes on, they begin to falter in this. So we're going to look at Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is teaching the people. He's reminding them that as Rochelle so beautifully explained to us a couple of weeks ago, the presence of God used to dwell in the tabernacle. And regular people like you and I could not access that. They had to access it through the high priest who once a year could go in into the presence of God. So the writer is teaching. He's reminding them of all this. He's like, and then Jesus came to earth, and now he's your high priest, and we all have access to the Father. He's telling them and reminding them all of this amazing, powerful stuff. And then it's almost just like he just stops. And he says, 
There is so much more we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. I am promise you I'm not calling you spiritually dull. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start over again. Listen to what he calls the basics. This blew my mind. Repenting from evil deeds. Repentance, a basic. Placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, which would be healing, laying on of hands for healing, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. I believe that that word is for every single one of us here. And the Holy Spirit is saying, you are no longer a baby believer. You are no longer a baby church, and you don't need to be taught the basics. You've already been taught those. It's time for you to start teaching others, using your gifts to disciple others. Start using the power that God has given you and share with someone right in front of you what it means to know Jesus. If this church is going to continue to grow, it takes all of us in whatever part of our faith journey we are on to help others grow. That is how the church grows, in ways we can and ways we can't measure. But it's time to grow up in your faith. It's time to take your place as a kingdom builder. I love what I heard a preacher say this week. He said, it's time to stop being bearded boys and entitled girls and step into our place as an apostle of Jesus. Now I know some of you are really sweating, <laughs> and that terrifies you to hear that. And your first response is, she's not talking to me. If you have that thought, I am talking to you. And you say, I'm not ready. <laughs> no, 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 I don't know enough. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you know a whole lot more than your friend who's never met Jesus. We live in a day when not having enough knowledge can't be an excuse anymore. Google search is a powerful tool when helping people answer questions about the Bible, but even Google search isn't nearly as powerful as the love you have for your friend or by the way you live your life differently. When we begin to live our lives with the fruits of the Spirit spilling out of this, when we begin to walk in our place, that is how the church grows, both spiritually and numerically, and it takes all of us. And I am so very proud of so many of you who have already done that. That's why this church has grown. That's why people's lives have been changed. All right, we're going to get back on the main path, and we're going to see what happened to Stephen. 
I promised you we would talk about him. We will. Go back to Acts 6, verse 9. But one day, Stephen is doing miracles and wonders. He's helping the poor. He's taking care of people. He's preaching the gospel. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, I think it's ironic that they were a part of a synagogue with that name and that they were so bogged down in bondage. As it was called, started a debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, doesn't take much, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. Stephen is accused of blaspheming God, and when he's questioned about it, so awesome, he begins to give them their entire Jewish history, like start to start with Abraham, just bam, all the way to Jesus. Acts 7, verse 51, he says to them, you stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him, stoned him out of the city, and began to stone rushed, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Here's where we get to Paul, who at that time was known by the name of Saul. Chapter 8. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in prison. So Saul watches, and he agrees with the stoning of Stephen. He is now a man on a mission, a mission to hunt down anyone who was following Jesus and kill them. And because of this persecution, the followers of Jesus have now spread out from Jerusalem, and they are all over the region. I love how God uses even the plans of the devil to spread the gospel of Jesus. Saul is known all over as someone on a mission to kill the followers of Jesus. But when Jesus invades your life, everything changes. Acts 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, 
Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. This is the leader of the church, the leader of the synagogue. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them back, both men and women, brought back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down on him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Paul stood speechless, for they had heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off of the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street. To the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man named from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have showed him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I think that's interesting. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. When Jesus invades your life, everything changes. The word invades might sound a little harsh to you. Usually when someone invades something, they come in to take something. That's exactly what Jesus does. When he invades your life, he takes it all. He replaces guilt and shame with confidence. He takes over the chains of your sin and replaces it with freedom. He takes your loneliness and replaces it with compassion, companionship, and friendship. He takes your mourning and he turns it into joy. He takes hopelessness and replaces it with hope that doesn't end. He takes our worldly pursuit and replaces it with a calling to build his kingdom. Friends, when Jesus invades your life, everything changes. At least everything should change. It did for Saul. Even the name that he was called by changed. Listen to this. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately, immediately, he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is indeed the son of God. All who heard him were amazed isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? 
And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them to chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews started plotting to kill him. What he was doing to the Christians all of a sudden was being done to him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul told, was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all over Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. The street that Paul was going down was one of hatred and death for believers and eternal death for himself. But Jesus invaded his life, and it changed everything. It changed because Paul chose to walk in the change that Jesus did in him. Some of you have had Jesus invade your life, but you're still walking around acting like he hasn't. You're doing the Christian checklist thing, but that's about where it ends. Unlike Paul, people don't really see a big difference in how you live your life. You're still living for you. You're still treating your spouse with indifference. You're still consumed with pornography. You're still walking in guilt about something Jesus has already set you free from. You're still whining about everything. You're covering your ears when the Holy Spirit speaks because what he's asking is too disruptive of the plans that you have for your own life. What if Paul had been invaded by Jesus and made a few changes, like stop killing Christians, but didn't jump fully into what God saved him to do? I have no doubt that the gospel still would have spread because it was God's plan for all people, but Paul would have missed out. Look, God doesn't need you. He will use someone else if you aren't willing. But the coolest thing is that he wants you. This is what it feels like to be chosen. He has chosen you. But will you jump fully in? I don't want to miss out. I want to be and I want to do all that God has for me. I want to say, Lord, do all that you have in mind with me. I want the inscription on my tombstone to reflect the call of God on my life. But how do we do that? I think Paul's example, immediately following his conversion, gives us a great starting point. There's a lot of speculation around this time in Paul's life, and we have a few vague details which I think give us some, some idea of what happened. We do know that immediately following his conversion, he spent a very short time in Damascus on Straight Street. And then he went away to Arabia for three years. Galatians chapter 1. 
Dear brothers and sisters, this is Paul, years later, writing about this to a local church. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source, and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I could proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were the apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. Paul had spent most of his life up to this point full of religion and legalism. The exact opposite of what this new life that he was called, called to looked like. I think what Galatians, what he's telling us here in Galatians is this. I had to get away for a while. I had to get alone with Jesus and get this past life taken out of me. I had to spend time with the Holy Spirit, listening and leaning and learning, in, learning from him. I had to spend time with the one who invaded my life before I could go out and do what he had called me to do. Paul had to get rid of all of the Saul that was left in him. He needed a complete heart transformation. Being invaded by Jesus and making the choice to live for him is just the beginning. This heart transformation, it takes time Shedding off of the old man or the old woman, walking away from the sin that has controlled you is a journey. And although history doesn't mark this as Paul's first journey, I would like to suggest to you that his three years in Arabia, getting to know Jesus, was his first and most important journey. And the same is true for us. We spend time with Jesus first, asking him to clear out all of the old sinful habits of our past and replace them with a new heart. We spend time with Jesus first, being filled up with his goodness, enjoying his presence. This is where we have to start. You have to start with time spent with Jesus. It is everything. It is the beginning. It is your middle. And it is your end. It's you and Jesus. The disciples spent three years walking on this earth with Jesus. Jesus spent 33 years on this earth, and three of them he spent in public ministry showing the world who he was. Paul spent three days blind. 
Paul spent three years shaking off his old man and communing with Jesus and getting to know him. This church has spent three years building a foundation. And I want to ask you, what's your three? I think you already know what it is because the Holy Spirit speaks to us and reveals things to us. Maybe it's choosing Jesus for the first time. Maybe you're like, cool story, Heather, but I don't know Jesus. Maybe that's your three. It's saying today, I want, I want to know this Jesus. Maybe your three is getting up a little bit earlier every day and opening your Bible and asking the Holy Spirit to teach you who Jesus is. Maybe your three is asking forgiveness of someone that you have wronged. Maybe your three is granting forgiveness to someone who has desperately hurt you. Listen, church, Jesus is not looking for perfect people, but he also isn't looking for complacent people. He's looking for people with messed up pasts whose lives he has invaded and who choose to jump into fully following Jesus no matter the cost. Paul knew the cost. He had been the cause of the cost for much of his life. But are you willing to bear that cost? He's looking for you, but he won't accept complacency. He'll choose someone else. Do you know why I think he chose Paul? Because he saw the fervor with which he went after something when he was killing Christians. And he said, I want that fervor for my kingdom. It is not a time for complacency. It is not a time in this history, on this planet, in this city, in this church, where we have been uniquely placed for us to be wishy-washy. It is a time to rise up and to be bold, to lean into the Holy Spirit, to not let the lies that people say about us hold us back. A time to be okay with the cost being heavy. Jesus has chosen you just like he chose Paul. Stand up on your feet. But will you choose to fully walk in everything that he has called you to do? Will you be okay with the cost being heavy? Will you be okay with your name being slandered? Will you be okay? Will you be okay with your life being at stake? Because Jesus has chosen you. Jesus, would you continue to speak to us? Would you continue to minister to us, your Holy Spirit guiding us? Showing us, giving us clarity about what it is that you're asking us. What is our three? What is it that we are supposed to do today to begin fully living out what Jesus has called us to do? Holy Spirit, continue to invade our lives. We want to be wrecked by you, God. We want to be so fully in that we're submerged in your presence. We don't want to just dip our toe at the edge of the lake, 
We want to be all in, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people together said, amen.